Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, this is Emma, production and experience director at the Webby Awards. You might remember me from the old ads, but I'm back. Are you as impressed by the work of the Webby winners as we are? The work honored at the Webby Awards is changing the future of the internet, and you can have access to all the deets behind it. Sign up to the Webby Gallery and Index to uncover insights, inspiration, and trends for your work or just for fun. You'll get the ability to discover innovative projects from around the world that are awesome online, a database of credits to check out who made all that groundbreaking digital work, Trends and insights not available outside of our database, including major categories like fashion, sports, and social, and the advanced power of search. So if you're ahead of us and want to find something we didn't mention, you can do that too. Make sure you're in the know and sign up for free at the top of our page at webbyawards.com. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. No, you are fake news. The internet must be stopped. Online life is real life. Our future is better together. Hey there, and welcome to the Webby Podcast. Over the past four years, the internet has become, well, complex, to say the least. Misinformation, conspiracy theories, lulls, memefied racism, and QAnon theories have seeped off of subcultural platforms, onto news programs, and even onto the presidential debate stage. Today, going online can leave your head spinning and asking, how did we get here? My next guest, Whitney Phillips, argues that our networks got us here by design. And all of us, everyday users and bad actors alike, contribute to the problem. Whitney is a professor of communications and rhetorical studies at Syracuse University, where she studies and teaches about polluted information, dis- and misinformation. More about those differences in a second. Whitney's day-to-day job is taxing, to say the least, and she describes the work she does with one sound. (sighs) Sighing, I think, is probably the best (laughs) description. Um, I look at polluted information and how we can better navigate our information ecosystem. I look at how we are connected to our technologies and to each other and the ways that that can go very, very wrong. And also the ways that we can harness that understanding to maybe make better decisions and be nicer to each other. So I sort of jokingly, but also not jokingly, generally sometimes refer to it as the hell. (laughs) So I guess that also covers it. Or everything that's terrible on the internet. That's also a go-to line. But I've been doing this for 12 years now. And that basic descriptor kind of nebulous idea of it's just kind of ugly stuff has always been there and has always been, I don't, I, I kind of shrug when someone asks what I do and I just point to all the bad stuff and say that. How did you, I mean, how did you get interested in specifically, I guess, for your using your word, studying all the bad stuff? Well, when I started my PhD program in 2008, I wanted to do political humor and then also had a brother at the time who was a subcultural troll 
and my attitude towards the term troll has shifted over the years. So it's a little stilted to say subcultural troll, but I'm referring to the specific group of people who were on 4chan in 2008 at the time, which are very different than the kinds of people who ultimately would go on 4chan and are associated with MAGA stuff. And it's a complicated story, but he was on that website a lot in 2008. And he kept telling me, oh, you've got to go on this cool new website. You'll love it. And I didn't know at the time that he was trolling me because I didn't know that. How, how old was he at that time? 16, 16, okay. 16 17 yeah. um, in that age bracket. And so eventually I did go on that website and was immediately horrified. Like, why would you do that to me? Um, but something interesting happened where, so I was kind of looking on this website. I was seeing a lot of stuff there that I was also seeing on more sort of standard political blogs and a lot of the memes I was seeing circulating. So there was something that was happening on 4chan that was already interesting because there's movement of memes and jokes and references in other places that weren't terrible. And then the the kicker really was my, I had gone home to visit my family at some point and this is after a few months of, of look kicking around on 4chan and he was hanging out with some of his friends from high school. And these were, you know, nice kids. They were kids whose politics were not horrifying. And yet I was sitting around the outside patio table with them and they shifted into trolling register. They were talking normally and then they started talking like trolls and it was this who are you? What's happening? So that moment was, I didn't understand it. It was confusing. It was concerning. And it made me think, oh, so maybe this is a, this is actually a research area as opposed to just sort of an interesting thing I was seeing online. And from that point forward, that's what I studied. And I just kind of have been in that space of things that are con confusing and concerning and upsetting. That's been the wheelhouse for the last 12 years. Now, having you know gone through those twelve years and done so much of this research and really, I mean, become an expert, how do you like look back on the significance of them shifting into that type of trolling register? I have spent years trying to make sense of that, and you know, I I used to not too long ago, as recently as two thousand and seventeen, I think. I used to think that the internet used to be funny. I used to look back on those early days and, and sort of think, because this was before the alt-right shift. This was before Charlottesville. This was before Trump. And I, for many years, thought, well, there was it was a simpler time. It was a better time. Things were more innocent back then. Things were funny back then. But when I've looked back with everything that we've experienced subsequent to that, I... I it's very clear that a lot of that ugliness was already embedded in what was happening. It was just couched as a joke or as just trolling or as just lulls. And it was really easy for people to, to not take it seriously, to not respond with serious concern. And some people did because some people were actively being harmed by it. But those voices, particularly voices of historically underrepresented people, Black women in particular, we're raising the alarms really early, but we're just not being listened to because so many privileged, young, sort of tech focused people were having so much fun. So I look back on those days and and really wish that I, I wish that I had looked at it differently. I wish that other people had looked at it differently. I wish 
that I wish, I wish everything was different. I can't look backwards without feeling a deep sense of regret um, and sadness and disappointment in, in myself. I was writing about the politics and the, and the dangers of, of trolling. You know, I mean, that was a focus of my dissertation and that became the core of my book. So it's not that I was... You weren't, you weren't out there fueling the trolling fire, so to speak. I didn't know what it could have become and I feel like I should have. I feel like I should have done more listening. I feel like I, I missed some things back then and that's upsetting. Um, I think a lot of people did. And, you know, now we're kind of dealing with the consequences of for years and years, lulls being this aspirational register, you know, of, of tolerating a certain kind of ironic racism or, or ironic misogyny or ironic transphobia or whatever, because it was, you know, quote unquote funny. I wonder what would have happened if that hadn't become the default mode of people in the technology space and in the in entertainment media, in journalism. I don't know how it would have been different, but I know that it would have been. And being there at the time, I, I, I feel weird about that. You've been looking at this stuff for a long time. And, you know, I was just sort of thinking about misinformation in general and the Internet and you know, I got an email in, in, I don't know, the mid 90s about like how Congress was passing like a five cent email tax or whatever. And I think back about that kind of stuff. And it was just, I mean, misinformation has always been mm -hmm. part of the internet, you know, and it's kind of like quaint. And like, I tell that story as like a joke, because it's like, you know, it's like nostalgic. Oh, look how it was. I think what I'm getting from you is that, and maybe I don't know if it goes back that far, but we sort of relegated all that stuff to this kind of like funny, perverse, weird part of the internet that wasn't really serious or mainstream or, you know, dangerous. But at some point it did become that. Was there a world where it didn't become that or it wouldn't have become that? Or like, is it this was always sort of destined to be where we got based on sort of where we started? I kind of think I kind of think that it was. I think we got here by design, not anybody's design in particular. It's not that anyone sat down and conspired. How are we going to create the worst possible networks, the most polluting networks? Wouldn't that be fun? I, not like that at all. But, you know, the, the ethos of the early Internet was all about encouraging spread. It was all about, you know, avoiding or denigrating the very idea of restriction on behavior. I mean, it was information wants to be free and I want to be freer. And, and that ethos, while a lot of really good and interesting and fun things can come from that, it also means that there were no guardrails built because the people who were building the early sites and, and social media when it first sort of started taking off and becoming ubiquitous, you know, those typically were folks who hadn't been the lifetime recipients of myths and disinformation and harm and attacks and belittlement and, and dehumanization. And so the worry about bad information wasn't as strong as the impulse, the need to maximize the spread of information. And had different people been building the sites, had different people been making those decisions, had different people been listened to, the networks could have been built differently. And minimizing the spread of bad information could potentially have been sort of baked into the cake, but it wasn't. And so now, you know, after all of the damage that has been done, you can't really, you can't just moderate it out because the ability for that stuff to spread and to have a market to spread, that's, that's baked into the systems. And so 
what do you do when our problem is our systems work exactly as they were designed to and work really, really well? That's the thing that becomes really existential and very overwhelming very quickly. How do you think about the way misinformation spreads today um, on, on the internet specifically? And I, I, of course, understand that there's all different types of misinformation and I'm sure it goes through different channels and there's different, you know, different accelerants and so forth. But from just like sort of a, you know, 50,000 foot view, if you will, like, what is the way that some of the sort of like super niche, weird, crazy ideas bubble up and become something that like you hear in presidential debates, for instance? Oh, Lord. Yeah. I mean, so the 30,000 foot view, I think is a really is the only way to do it. So when people talk about bad things online, whether it's, you know, harm, explicit violence, or just really crazy conspiracy theories, they tend to focus on the sort of apex predators. So I'm, I'm referring now to I'm making a triangle with my hands, uh, biomass pyramid. So in, in biology, biomass pyramids represent the relative weight and number of one organism in an ecosystem compared to other organisms. So, you know, there's lions and tigers and bears at the top and then like foxes underneath that and then like bunnies and then like worms. And that's obviously very accurate science. So please quote me on that. Um, but just the idea that, you know, each strata, each stratum gets bigger as you go down. And when we talk about harms online and bad stuff online, usually it's the lions and tigers and bears that people are talking about and thinking about. And so, you know, when we think about mis and disinformation, well, it's the bad, it's the bad actors. It's the foreign disinformation agents. It's the people saying outlandish things during presidential debates. Outlandish is an understatement. But we don't typically think about the lower strata. And that's a mistake because when you think about actual ecology, lions and tigers and bears can only survive if their prey survives. And their prey can only survive if their prey survives. And they can only survive if there's enough worms and trees and other stuff. And so the ecosystem is dependent upon all the different strata. And mis and disinformation is able to flourish, not just because the apex predators are saying crazy stuff with a huge platform, but all of the other ways that the lower strata, the other animals are facilitating that spread or are incentivizing that spread or are helping spread things by retweeting something because they hate it. And I think that we would be better served to think about the, these problems, not just in terms of the bad actors. It's very easy to point our fingers at the really obnoxious, dangerous people. But what do we do? What, how do we contribute? What, what do we put into the soil that then grows the trees, that then provides the habitat for the animal that's then eaten by the animal that's eaten by the apex predator? And if we thought more in those terms, we might think differently about our everyday online behavior. And, and I hope that that's what we start doing, because as long as we're just focusing on the apex predators, we're only having a tiny percentage of the overall possible conversations about that ecosystem. So just to get further into that, what are the what would you characterize as some of the lower strata that's like enabling a lot of this? I mean, you touched on some of it, like retweeting something that you hate. Yeah. Yeah. Or just like making jokes that, you know, your friends will understand. I mean, so when we're on social media, whichever platform we're on, you know, there's often a core group of followers who we are sort of performing for. And, you know, depending on the service, I mean, some in some cases, you might not know the, your core followers very well. And in some cases, for example, on Facebook, it's like people you really know, potentially. And we assume sometimes that we or not sometimes, we often assume that that group of people 
get what we're saying. They understand our humor. They know that we're not actually racist. They know that we're retweeting something because we know it's just absurd. And that may be true of the immediate people who understand our humor, who can read our register. But outside of that group, you know, it's often impossible to tell what a stranger actually means online. So the stuff that we do without thinking that makes sense in our own particular context can be a vector for the spread of, of information that gets used in, and weaponized in a totally different way by another audience. But we're not, because we're not thinking ecologically, we're not thinking about who else we might be connected to, who we're not seeing immediately. We don't tend to think about those kinds of things. So, you know, it's not that everyday people are these like, actually they're terrible and unethical and we should condemn each and every one of us. It's just very difficult often to even know what we need to be ethical about because we're not seeing everything that we could or should on social media. And as a result, we don't always even know when we're stepping on someone's toes. So then we step on a lot of people's toes, not because we want to, but because we don't know they're there. So, you know, those everyday small actions, they're certainly less dangerous than a tiger bite, but they accumulate, right? Mm. That's why the bot, the lowest rung of the, of the biomass pyramid, that's the greatest weight and number of living organisms. There are more of them. They weigh more, so much more than the lions and tigers and bears. And that's why thinking at the lower stratum is, is a good way to, I don't know, try to make some headway in this hellscape. Are there very disciplined and expert sort of accelerators of, of the spread of certain types of information that exist in sort of these different strata that are sort of that are malignant, if you will, or are purposefully trying to to accelerate certain types of information. And I, I mean, obviously, you sort of brought up this like apex predator idea. So you have, you know, Russian bots or whatever terrible group you want to think of there. But what about further down the line? Sure. I mean, recommendation algorithms, I would say, are are part of that process. Recommendation algorithms aren't built specifically to be, you know, conduits of hate that that's the programmers probably hopefully they didn't try to to make recommendation algorithms spread so much pollution and hate but that often is the result and so you have something that otherwise would be confined to a particular group but it gets kicked up because it hits whatever threshold of virality that then trending topic algorithms are paying attention to and then they kick that out to more and more people and then some people actually like it because they're racist and so they share it but other people don't like racism and so then they push back against it they retweet it to say how terrible it is and it still ends up spreading yeah. Another element of this that's really critical to mention is journalism. I mean, and that's not to say that individual journalists, same thing, are actively trying to cause harm. Most people are not actively trying to cause harm. But just because that's your motives, it doesn't mean that's going to be the outcome. And so with journalists, you know, they'll see a story that's trending or they'll see something that's outrageous or they'll hear something that's terrible or the president will say something in public and then all of the articles follow and then all of the retweets follow. And then that just feeds into this overall sort of ecological spread of this pollution. And, and so it's not just, we need to think about the individual people and what we individually do, but how are all of those things constantly feeding into and being fed by each other? The bad actors, journalism, algorithms, other online affordances, our own biases, you know, the, the friendships that we have in real life, all of these things work at once. 
to make our online spaces a, a very inhospitable place for healthy conversation. You have a book coming out, which is actually already out online, uh, but it's coming out in paperback, I believe, in March from MIT Press. It's called You Are Here, A Field Guide for Navigating Polarized Speech, Conspiracy Theories, and Our Polluted Media Landscape. I note that you're using this word polluted um, in our conversation and in the book. You could have used other words like a virus or disease or other types of ways of thinking about this. Why did you choose pollution? And like, how, and unpack that a bit, if you will. Is, is it a model for us to think about this type of information and how it spreads? Yeah. So the, the, typically when people talk about this kind of stuff, they'll use either misinformation or disinformation. And, you know, the difference is that misinformation is false and misleading information that is not deliberately spread. You genuinely think that the information is true, um, but it just happens not to be. Disinformation is deliberate falsehood. You know that the information isn't true, but you share it for whatever reasons that maybe only you know. And those distinctions are important because why someone shares something should influence how or if we respond to it. But oftentimes online, you can't tell if something is mis or disinformation. There is a motive, but we may not be able to access it. And so then you can't even really distinguish, is this a real threat or is this a joke? I, who, who knows? And so using polluted information, it's not, you don't have to focus on motives. It, motive has nothing to do with it. And, you know, if you think about how actual pollution works offline, you know, you may not want to contribute to pollution. But every time you flush your toilet, every time you wash your hair, every time you, you know, get takeout, you're contributing to to the pollution that exists, even people who try to be, you know, environmentally conscious. So it, it means that motives don't have to be the determining factor, um, which then opens us up to have broader conversations about the ways that we all can inadvertently pollute. So it's not just to focus on the, you know, the, the people who are driving barrels of poison or whatever down to the lake. It's like, what are you doing in your day-to-day -day life that could result in the water table still being impacted? And the other thing about the polluted information frame is that it foregrounds the social justice element of this, that, you know, offline historically underrepresented marginalized groups are, are simply more likely to be, you know, polluted where they live, work, and play just as a matter of course. And similarly online, certain groups of people are more likely to be the recipients, the regular recipients of hate and disinformation and harm. And so thinking about pollution in that way, it, it reminds us ultimately we're talking about the embodied experience of being a human and many humans embodied experiences are threatened threatening in ways that others are not. And so it forces you to have that immediately political conversation that, you know, myths or disinformation wouldn't, it's not going to bring you there. That's not an inherently political term. Let's talk about some specific pollution, if you will. QAnon. It's a conspiracy theory. I would characterize it as, I'm excited to hear how you describe it. Tell us, like, how would you over, from a you know, high level, how would you even describe QAnon? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. So QAnon, I mean the the immediate QAnon theory and i you know it is a it is a conspiracy theory it lines up with you know existing conspiracy theory templates um it has historical precedent but this particular theory it maintains that donald trump is waging and winning a war against a satanic cannibalistic ring cabal of child predators who are primarily democrats but the the qanon narrative and the significance of qanon is so much bigger than those more sensationalist elements of the story those are often the elements that people want to talk about or make fun of or you know just rail against because they're they're so outrageous in many ways it's just sort of an updated version of the satanic panics people like that story people were interested in it in the 80s and 90s and they're interested in it again but when you're just focusing on that element you don't really get the full big picture of why qanon actually matters politically and the reason for that is that qanon feeds into and is fed by a broader swath of narratives that fall under deep state narratives so this idea that you have obama holdovers in the trump administration who are actively trying to destroy the trump administration from within and sometimes people use deep state explicitly they refer to the deep state roger stone and michael flynn both in the trump orbit they used the deep state explicitly as a legal defense when they were in trial So sometimes people actually use the term but very very often and this has been Trump's sort of a, a favorite rhetorical approach of of Trump's they won't explicitly say the deep state but they'll refer to what the deep state is so it's democrats trying to rig the election or it's democrats working in cahoots with public health experts lying about or over exaggerating the threat of covid or it's any any instance in which the elites are trying to run things control things take something away from you take your freedoms away by making you wear a mask or whatever and so that whole range of theorizing it it all comes down to the same basic idea there's this bad they that are you know almost exclusively you know aligned with liberals and very often that's coded or not very coded antisemitism and they're out to get us real americans good americans and it isn't just the wildness of the the satanic elements of the theory that makes it dangerous all the other stuff this idea that you can't trust experts you can't trust scientists you can't trust the government you can't trust mail and ballot ballots that is so fundamentally corrosive to a functioning democracy and that's the thing about qanon that is actually really concerning it's not i mean the the child satanic stuff that's that's its own sort of part of the story and we've got to deal with that and figure out you know how to respond to to those things but it's the broader narrative and the broader corrosiveness that makes it important for people to understand and to try to push back against where they can yeah i mean it's it's almost like 
I think I saw the word like an inoculation, but I'm not sure that's right. But it's almost the very nature of it kind of prevents anyone from debunking it because it's so anti-expert. It's like the, the idea that you would debunk it would prove it kind of in a way. It, that's exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, and, and many conspiracy theories, especially what are known as the evil internal enemy kind of template of conspiracy theorizing. It's this other, this group of other, this bad them that's that's out to get you. And the more you try to deny that they exist or that they are doing the things that they're being accused of, the more believers are inclined to think that you must be one of them. Because, for example, denying the existence of a cabal of satanic child molesters is exactly what a satanic child molester would do. And so there's a great difficulty in trying to respond to these kinds of theories with fact checks or with, you know, official accounts, because those are exactly the kinds of accounts that are not accepted, that are seen with deep suspicion for people who are inclined to believe. I mean, so if we just touched on like the sort of core of the story, if you will, for a second, right? The the liberals who are you know, drinking the blood of underage ch children and that stuff. Is that an iterative story? Is it like a story that sort of builds upon itself and that through information exchange, it's being added to and changed or, or does it come from, is there like a thrust of it that was put out there to start? Where does that sort of like, if you were to boil it down to like, let me explain it to you in three sentences, where does, where does that come from to begin with? I mean, it's hundreds of years old. I mean, that goes all the way back to blood libel stuff. I mean, yeah. it's just the cornerstone of modern anti-Semitism is the idea that Jews who are secretly running things are also stealing Christian babies and eating them. I mean, that's that's been around forever. And the anti-Semitic elements of that narrative were front and center in the satanic panics of the 80s and 90s. It it wasn't as much about eating babies, although there were narratives that the claims people made that they were eating babies. But it's more this idea that this evil alien subversive element is trying to take your, to, trying to take what, what's yours away from you. And Jews have just historically been the scapegoat that's been pointed to throughout centuries. So, you know, the, the narrative has some appeal because it's been around for so long. So many people are, you know, maybe, maybe they're not quite there with the Satanism stuff. That might be a bridge too far, but there are lots of people who believe that the elites are secretly running things and, and the elites are talking about, you know, global bankers or referring to people like George. Like that's all, even if the person is not super aware that they're doing it, those are all, again, very old anti-Semitic tropes. And, and so there's something in the water with these kinds of stories they appeal to an awful lot of people. And that speaks to who historically has been denigrated and held up as the kind of go-to villain. And this iteration is different because of our information environment, but the narrative is basically the same. And the, the, rea or the one reaction to it can be to sort of make fun of it really, right? Which is, I mean, one, one reaction can be, these people are insane, this is so stupid part that type of reaction which we had some people have to this and that we've had to all sorts of other types of mis and disinformation is is really kind of part of the problem 
Well, it yeah, I mean, it, for a couple of in a couple of ways. I mean, first, the more you make fun of it, the more you call a believer crazy, the more that's affirming of the overarching worldview that they are out to undermine us. I mean, so it just kind of lends credence to someone's belief that they're part of this maligned, trodden upon, you know, us that's sort of valiant and they are they're doing everything they can to undermine us. But it's problematic in another way too, because even when you make fun of it, even when you fact check it, you know, coolly and without passion, you're still helping spread it, that you still ultimately contribute to an information ecosystem in which this kind of information is able and incentivized to spread. And so even though the impulse to make fun of, of the most outrageous elements of, of the story are understandable, that impulse can actually backfire in unexpected ways because of the unintended downstream consequences of how polluted information travels throughout our networks. This is a really major topic in conspiracy theories these days. It's certainly, there's been a lot of polling out about QAnon and there's way more people that believe some of it than most people would ever imagine until they see some of the polling. But it is also one of many, probably a, big, a bigger one, but one of many different types of conspiracy theories or misinformation that's being spread, disinformation that's being spread through, you know, what we call like so we could call social networks, Facebook and TikTok and Twitter and whatever other ones we want to sort of name here. There's people who believe the earth is flat there. I mean, we could go on and on. It seems like the attitude or the discussion around what internet companies should do about this is always like, what should they do about QAnon? What should they do about flat earthers? How should they stop this type of misinformation? But I mean, there's an unlimited of supply out there, it would seem. How do you view the role and responsibility of at least the major platforms where much of this information is, is trafficked or the most of it is trafficked? in response to this? And where do you think, I'm just going to assume that you think they're getting it wrong because it doesn't seem like they're doing such a great job. Well, I mean, it doesn't, I don't have to make the argument that they're getting it wrong. I mean, we just need to go on the internet. I mean, how the way that things have been handled so far has, has resulted in an information ecosystem that's just unbearable at times. Whatever they have been doing is not working. That is demonstrably the case. This is not a healthy environment that for anybody. The thing I wish would happen is that they would shift their understanding of freedom. And, and by that, I mean, right now on social platforms, since their very inception, the, the focus has been on what's known as negative freedom. So freedom from restriction, that the goal is you minimize the moderation that you do because you want to protect people's free speech in the colloquial sense, not the constitutional sense, but that you don't want to infringe on anybody's ability to say stuff. And that's born of, you know, a two pronged kind of attitude. First, you know, you can't monetize content that's not there. So you want people to spread and say a lot of things. But then also it's there's more uh, it's more ideological. You know, it's this idea that information wants to be free, that, you know, the marketplace of ideas will sort it out, that you know, sunlight is the best of disinfectants, that these are attitudes that are sort of baked into the ethos of these of these companies that also, you know, makes them a lot of money. And so there's double incentive to think about speech and about information in those ways. So freedom from restriction. 
And, and the problem with that is, is that in protecting speech in that way, in protecting freedoms in those ways, it actually undermines the greatest amount of freedom for the greatest amount of people. So I wish that instead of focusing on negative freedoms, freedoms from, I wish that they would focus on positive freedoms. So the right of the collective not to be poisoned, as opposed to the right of the individual to poison whomever they want. And, and positive freedoms are, are freedoms for everybody to enjoy the same freedoms equally. And if they were to shift that ethos and start thinking about policy decisions in those terms, it wouldn't automatically solve any of the problems, but the kinds of solutions that they would build from that point, from that foundation would be very different than the ones they have now, because their solutions now are based on freedoms from negative freedoms. So I want to see that, that switch. That's a hard, I mean, that's, I, I don't know how likely it is that that's going to happen because that would go against their business interests. They would need to do more moderating. They would need to figure out a way to slow down spread. They would need to make algorithms more transparent and potentially give people more choice in what they see and how they see it and why they see it. But only by doing those things would they actually be able to get to the root of the problem and create spaces that have the ability to be healthy, to be healthy environments for people to speak as freely as possible, the most amount of people speaking as freely as possible. So I think that that's what they got wrong from the very beginning and continue to get wrong because that freedoms from negative freedoms are, are sort of baked also into the American cake. That's mm -hmm. the root of why so many people have been so resistant to wearing masks. They don't want to be told to wear a mask rather than thinking wearing a mask actually ensures the greatest amount of freedom for everyone. If we just wear masks, there will be less virus. There will not be need for lockdown. Therefore, there will be more freedom. But that's not how we typically think about freedom in the United States. And, and so it's not just a problem of how technology companies think of these issues. It's, it's a broader cultural ethos that we've got we've to interrogate and reimagine. It probably goes without saying, but let's say it. It's it's also about whose freedom is being protected, right? Mm -hmm. um, because I mean, if you you brought up masks. You know, people of color are dying at faster rates from the coronavirus than than white people. People on line who are suffering because of the polluted environment tend to be, you know, women, people of color, underrepresented groups more, at least more than white men, for instance. And I mean, as you're talking, I the freedom to express yourself is a very privileged type of freedom. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's it, so it's this assumption that in the marketplace of ideas, everybody is going to share their thoughts equally. And some of those ideas are going to be grotesque and some of them are going to be harmful. But you can counter that better, you know, much better than you know censoring anybody. You just have more people say more things. And ultimately, the truth will win out and goodness will win out and all of the polluted information that's going to fall by the wayside. And we're going to have a better society because the marketplace is basically going to save us from ourselves. But, but that assumption is based on this misunderstanding of what the marketplace actually does and is. Voices are not equal. Voices are not equal offline. They never have been. Certain voices carry louder, carry further. And carry with greater consequence than other voices, marginalized voices, voices of color. They, they just have never carried as far or white people in positions of power have not been willing to listen. So, so offline, the idea of the best response to bad speech is more speech. It just doesn't actually work. It's a good idea. It's a nice thought, 
but it doesn't take into account power differentials and, in, and structural injustice. And online, those limitations are even more striking because algorithms are selecting certain kinds of speech and making sure that more people see it, making sure that certain kinds of voices and expression is what is valued and placed at the forefront on these platforms. And it's not social justice oriented information. It's not information that's actually beneficial for the whole. It is the screaming. It's the antagonism. It's the hate. It's the lies. Those are the things that do well on those sites, not just because a lot of people, you know, actively agree with and like those bad things, but because people of good faith are reacting to those things and are also triggering the algorithms. So the algorithms are privileging the worst kind of expression and that silences so many voices. And, and so this idea of just, you know, if you don't like something you see online, we'll just say something more and that's going to solve it. it. That's part of the problem. And so all of these issues ultimately are not just structural on, on these platforms, but they're foundational to the U.S. American story. And that's what makes trying to respond so difficult, because this is these are centuries of ideals, centuries of assumptions. And, and there is so much work to be done that thinking about it just in terms of, you know, information online, that's that's just one that's just one small piece of the pie. Yeah, it can hurt your head to think about it. It my head hurts a lot. <laughs> I mean, we have a government that for whether they do a good job or not is a whole different discussion. But we, we do regulate pollution. One thing you're saying is you wish that they could shift their definition of freedom. Mm -hmm. That would be great, assuming they're not. I mean, they, this big, this greater, they are not going to do that. And maybe some of them want to, and there's individual people, but it, it doesn't seem like on its own, it's just going to happen. No. What, what are the things that you see from your perspective as being ways of, of correcting? I mean, I think correcting is probably too soft of a word to use here, but changing what's going on. Do you think it's, is it, a, is it regulation I mean, there has to be some because, yeah, just sort of trusting the companies to, to handle it themselves hasn't really worked out so great so far. So they're not they're not going to do it unless they're forced to. And the only way they're going to be forced to is through regulation. And of course, that raises all kinds of questions about, you know, how are you going to oversee the overseers, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I, I get it. But also, you know, the simplest response to that is how are we doing right now? you know, is what we're doing working? And the answer is a resounding no. So this, of course, regulation would bring up all kinds of speech issues and concerns, but this is not sustainable, the world that we're in currently. So something has to change. And the most immediate and obvious um, and available avenue for that would be, of course, Section 230. And, you know, Section 230 is part of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. And it essentially shields social media platforms from liability for what their users post. And it gives them the ability, but not requirement. I mean, it allows them to, but doesn't force them to moderate content. And that matters because if a platform is editorializing, if they're sort of picking and choosing, if it's like the front page of a newspaper, then they would forfeit their status as platform. They would become a publisher. And so the ability to moderate, but without forfeiting that liability protection is, is really integral to, to Section 230. And right now, it's utilized to protect companies from liability. And they've been able to use it 
I mean, they use it as a safe harbor. They get away with basically doing the absolute minimum of moderation to benefit their bottom line. So they've profited enormously from the protections afforded to them by Section 230. And it's it's not that it's necessarily a bad law, but it was it was written in the 90s. I mean, you didn't have algorithmic amplification in 1996. And so to suggest that, you know, Facebook is just sort of randomly allowing people to post things, that's not true anymore. And so what needs to happen, Danielle Citrone, she's a, a brilliant scholar who's written quite a lot about Section 230. You know, one of the things that she argues is that the liability protections need to be contingent on effectively moderating the platform. That if you are not doing a good job of doing what you can about pollution, understanding that it's a tough job. I mean, it's it's not, if it was as easy as snapping your fingers, they would have done it already. Yeah. But if you're not doing what you can, being transparent about your policies, being transparent about your algorithms, then sorry, you lose liability protection and then the the legal costs would be absolutely astronomical. So if you were to take that incentive away from them, then of course they would they would fall all over themselves to try to find a solution because it would be catastrophic for their business. And so I think that that, you know, right now that's a conversation that's already underway. People are debating, you know, what exactly would modifications to section 230 look like? I I favor Danielle Citrone's argument there could be other things to do. There could be other regulatory avenues, but it's not going to happen while Donald Trump is is president. And so these are conversations that right now can only sort of be hypothetical because there's no mechanism of power to actually enforce any of them. So this is a question, you know, for for on the other side of things, if if we get to the other side. Um, you've made calls to defund social media, which I think is really interesting. What do you, how do you imagine that? And, and what does that what does that mean? Well, I mean, so it's it's basically making the an argument that's akin to discussions about defunding the police. It's not saying police can't have money. It's reimagining what a police force can or should look like. It is figuring out what money could be allocated to other community services that would be able to do some of the work that's currently being handled by the police, but probably shouldn't. And, you know, in particular, responding to calls that don't need a law enforcement officer, but need a social worker. And the same basic idea would hold for defunding social media. It's saying we have to fundamentally reimagine what the attention economy is, does, and should be. In whose service? Who, who is it serving? And, and what are the goals? And how could we reallocate funding? What could we do to fundamentally structurally reimagine what our networks look like? And until we're willing to take that step and to challenge, to question everything we've thus far taken for granted, just assume this is what the attention economy is like, until we're willing to go to that place of fundamental questioning and, and be willing to really dig some roots up and rebuild from the ground up, we are never going to see a different outcome because the outcome we're dealing with now is baked into the structures we have. So we need to tear those structures down and start over. Whitney Phillips, thank you so much for joining us on the Webby Podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been great to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Whitney for joining us on the Webby Podcast. If you're listening and want more information on how our networks prioritize polluted information, check out Whitney's new book, You Are Here, a field guide for navigating polarized speech, conspiracy theories, and our polluted media landscape. 
We'll link to it in the show notes. You can also read some of her work as a contributor for Wired Magazine. If you like the Webby Podcast and want to support it, leave us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you really like it and you want to make my mom happy, leave us a review. If you are making great stuff on the internet, I hope you won't forget to enter. Our final deadline is coming up Friday, December 18th. For information on that and other information on the Webby Awards, visit webbyawards.com. That's W-E-B-B-Y awards.com. And on most social platforms at the Webby Awards. You can reach me on social at DMD Likes. Our producer is Taylor Griffin. Our editorial lead is Jordana Jarrett. Terrence Brosnan is our editor. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is your new life friend. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is the Webby Podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.